Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on February the 21st, 2016. This is part three of From the Master's Mouthpiece. That's the short title. The longer one, of course, is From the Master's Mouthpiece Coming Soon, Your Planned Future of Gloom and Doom. And the reason for this is because, you understand, there are forms of warfare. One of the most potent forms is economic warfare. Those who control the money system internationally control the world and every nation in the world that runs on their system. And you see they've taken an awful long time to make sure uh, that everyone's on the same system, run by the same people, managed by the same private uh, banks at the top, and the so-called specialists that they're, they're put into place of power in every country. And they're all telling you now, of course, that it's time to get the message home to you that the future ain't what it used to be sort of thing. And you're getting used to hearing what I've mentioned for a long time now. Austerity is coming. Austerity meaning poverty. And you're going to get plundered, of course. Uh, the rich people at the top who control it all are bringing their new system to suit themselves. And they will be literally worlds apart in their standard of living from the rest of the population. They almost are already, in fact, but they're going to go even further as they plunder the planet, make you pay incredible amounts of money for basic necessities and uh, energy of all kinds, just to heat yourself, keep alive, that kind of thing. And you'll find that uh, you've got nothing left to spend. You're post-industrial, you see. And, you know, the big boys at the top, uh, it's so easy. They always give you a plausible, a semi-plausible reason for the way that things are going. All we expected, these, these are the so-called top guys, supposedly. That's, the, that's the, their cover in economics and how financial systems run and are regulated and all the rest of it. We know it's nothing but a big Ponzi scheme. We know there's nothing backing the money. And they'll tell you, oh, well, you see, we thought it would always grow forever and get bigger and bigger and businesses would flourish and get bigger and bigger. And your whole system, true enough, you see, which is also theirs because they gave you the system, you're living in your system, folks. Believe you me, they're not just taking it over. You're, you're already in it. So are your parents and grandparents. And they're changing their system to suit themselves, as I say. You're going to... Uh, as the big boys, of course, will get richer and richer as they plunder the planet. They always do. And they're bringing in a new type of money eventually, doesn't matter what, what they call it. Electronic doesn't matter. Nothing at all matters regarding what it is because it's based on nothing. And everything's lent into existence, meaning every dollar, for instance, or pound in Britain or euro in Europe, everything is basically a debt creation. And the debt is sold off again to the bondholders at the top. So you can't, it naturally gets devalued every year anyway, always has. That's why you could live for, what, on, say, $10 a week back in 1920. Pretty comfortably. You could live on it. And was it worth today? So it's debt money, debt creation, and it's based on nothing, backed by nothing. And it's called the devaluation of currency, that's actual buying power is devalued. So you need more and more of the dollars to get the same darn thing. 
But anyway, the system's getting changed. It's been planned long before you were born to get to this stage. And it's not happening by chance, as I say. They love to tell you, well, we didn't see this coming when we gave free trade out to China and made them the manufacturer of the world and used your tax money under the agreements to ship the, the factories in your country over to China and to pay for any losses they incurred until they were all set up and making a profit. No, you know, it all sounds crazy. At the time, it was obvious what was going to happen as part of the big plan. And to get folk to accept, in a plausible fashion, again, uh, the next step of the big plan, they'd already created the institutions internationally to manage a world economy, you see. The Bank for International Settlements, and um, the, the, the European Central Bank, for instance. And every country's got its own central banking system, generally run by the same clique. In fact, they move them around now, like musical chairs. The CEOs get moved around from one country to the next one. And they all belong to the Council on Foreign Relations and often are also members of the Trilateral Commission, both created by the Rockefeller brothers for the U.S., and they're both part of the, the London institution of the Royal Institute for International Affairs that also created the Bank for International Settlements in preparation for what's coming down now. Again, I won't go back over all of that stuff because I've done so many talks on it before, in, and you'll find them in cutting com archive section. You have to look at previous techniques run by the same group, especially world wars. World wars, before they even happened, were hailed as necessary by many of the propagandists that belonged to the private club, you see, comprised really of international bankers and their sons too who were sent across the world to foment wars, according to one of the historians of the club, that was Professor Carl Quigley. And when you look at the massive devastation in human life, for instance, and you look at the massive, again, massive demolition of towns and the cities across Europe from World War One. Never mind the incredible costs that every country that participated in it were left with massive, massive debts. It was claimed in one of the newspapers back in the late 90s, almost the year 2000, that Britain had just paid off its debt for World War One, And the ones who really drafted up the treaties and all the rest of it, apart from the who wanted what piece of German property and all the rest of it, uh, you, you had the most important ones there, and they were, again, the international bankers. And the chairman of the, the Federal Reserve that, you know, this is coincidentally been created just before uh, 1914, I think it was 1913, they brought it in, in the U.S. And the top bankers that were lending to all the different participants uh, got together 
to find out uh, how to re- reparations for the cost of it all. Who, the, 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 those who are claimed to be defeated always end up paying the cost, you see. And that led to uh, really what happened for the build-up for World War II. Germany couldn't get out of it, the massive debts, and getting plundered to by France especially. For all it's coal, they used to march over to into the Ruhr Valley and plunder and plunder for years after the World War One, and Germany had to either starve to death, live in utter squalor and poverty and starve to death, or fight its way out of it. So, many authors at the time talked about uh, this would bring on another World War, which it did. It was inevitable. But the thing is, too, all the countries, France and Britain and many other countries were all borrowing heavily from, uh, especially the U.S. banks at that time. And the U.S. banks were often held by international uh, people too, who were, some of them who had just come into the country, for instance, like the Warburgs that ran the Federal Reserve. Anyway, it's a big plan, a big, big plan. And of course, you go back even further to the bunch that lived in London, around London. Uh, that was the Alfred Milner group, Lord Alfred Milner. And he talked about the world plan to bring about, just like Cecil Rhodes, the, the merge with the Cecil Rhodes group, into taking over the world's resources and using national armies to police countries they would invade to, t- to take over these resources. And they, they even talked about starting wars to make it all happen. And that their vision was to have a, a world commonwealth. That's how they initially phrased it. And it'd be run on initially the, 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 this, this system that had taken over England of apparent democracy. And it would push all the same goals of free trade that they'd been pushing through this group through the Parliament in England, in London, in England. They would use that across the world. In other words, a model-type system across the world, all connected to each other, all run by the same financial lenders and so on. And they would bring a world, a global economy, a global parliament, all that kind of stuff came into it too. And many of their propagandists, as I say, wrote about it, including the left-wing propagandists, which they also owned, such as... Um, H.G. Wells, for instance, who wrote about the necessity for war. And after World War I, H.G. Wells said, well, the people haven't buckled down. He says, we've created the League of Nations, which was the... And he actually lauded this as being the embryo for a world government. Uh, and that transformed eventually into the United Nations, as you all know. But he said that the people haven't buckled under. They're not on their knees yet. They're not willing to give up their sovereignty. We need another war. And they went to work on that too. So it's left wing and right wing are all part of the same body, same body of the bird, you might say. Never forget that. And getting back to the point, look at the devastation it causes. What does it do? It depopulates, especially the young men, you see. World War I shocked the world, utterly shocked them in the fact that every village and town and con- you know in Britain and countries like that were decimated of their their young men, 
And often it was young men and the sons and the fathers as well. And uncles that were wiped out, whole families. Incredible, incredible massacres. Incredible. And they were sent off into their, their, you know, into the uh, hailstorms of machine gun fire uh, to march across open ground. They weren't allowed to lie down, take cover. There was no cover anyway in, in Flanders and different places. And they couldn't lie down. You lied down if you were killed. That was it. You know, down you went. And they went wave after wave. And, and they literally tallied up them, dropping regiment after regiment for years. Right? Here's another bunch over the top. When you go, And that was it. Within 30 seconds, a minute you're all dead. Get another bunch over. In other words, the idea was they would, whoever ended up at the end of it with a few more left uh, than your enemy, then you'd won, you'd won the war. That was the idea. But meanwhile, you decimated the country of all your, all your young men. Decimated a lot of the middle class too. And the officer class as well, you see. So accomplished a lot of things. And that's the key to all these, what I'm talking about tonight. Look at what it accomplishes. Massive devastation. Massive death toll. On young people who would otherwise have bred and created more children and so on. Decimated the middle classes who felt it was their duty at that time to go off and, and uh, kill, etc. Or be killed. It created massive debt for each nation. So they're now less sovereign than they definitely were before. Because now the bankers rose to the top, the lenders to manage the economies, and they brought in their, their fake sciences. I've often said, if you can't multiply, add, and subtract, uh, why, you know, maybe then you need someone to help you, but the fact is, why is it a small clique that run the system? And why do they obscure everything with this, this so-called bogus science of economics, which apparently is the best they can do, and yet we get plundered a few times now every century by the bankers. It's always been that way. This is called science. Well, maybe it is if you're on the, the, the top men's side. And the public always bail them out, so now they want to bail, uh, bail in or steal your savings as well. That's theft. This, this science is called theft. And their best economists say, well, we never see it coming. It's a shock to us all. We never saw this coming. <laughs> I won't even go into 2008, what happened there. We all know the story. And the greed factor, as they grabbed mortgages by the thousands, jacked up the price and then sold them off to another bank for this, and it went round and round in circles. Incredible, incredible greed Ponzi schemes. They call this science. Well, we don't know how it happened. Nonsense. Anyway, after World War One and Two, you got massive rebuilding projects. Massive. At the end of World War Two, they even had a meeting, international meeting in London, and it was uh, led by the King of England, supposedly. 
And uh, they said, you know, this, this is still too many people. So this newly morphed organization from the League of Nations into the United Nations had a department in it already of human population control, which is simply called population, a department of population, the same, same part. And it talked about many, many ways to depopulate the peoples. This is from countries that lost the so-called creme de la creme of all their youth. Think about it. Naturally, this shocked a few thinkers that weren't still in shock from the war itself. But it shocked them. What's going on here? What's this, what is this? Is there some kind of plan? Who wants this drastic depopulation of especially the European countries? And the U.S. as well. So you get depopulation, right? Which is a, another way of saying you can sterilize the, the men as well by different techniques. And they can't repopulate. Think about it. Massive debt. So your standard of living will never ever be the same. Not, not that it can be now anyway, because it's, it's debt money. It's worth, with every dollar created... From year to year, it's worth a lot less than the previous year. And you also have massive governmental control. Government agencies spring up like cancers to control during wartime. And after wartime, they never let go, including their taxation systems. War also brings austerity. Because of governmental control again through their banking agencies and rationing, you see, massive rationing. War also, such as World War One and then Two, after World War Two, for instance, in Britain and some other countries in Europe, they brought in their national health services. The reason, the time for it being, there was so much poverty that an infant, infant mortality through pretty well malnutrition because they're rationing, heavy, massive rationing, uh, that they'd have to bring in uh, the National Health Service and nurses who would visit every family in postnatal care and ensure that child got its, its, its uh, bottle of uh, condensed orange juice and uh, various minerals and so on uh, every week or every two weeks. So you have intrusions into the home by government that then gives itself the authority because the nurses would go around all the houses and they would uh, start saying, oh, you should tidy up here, you should blah, blah, you know, this isn't healthy, blah, blah, and then you start ordering you around, etc. Now, we see the same thing today with GERFEC in Scotland, and it's also being expanded into other countries and through the mental health organisations. And remember, your mental health organisations are now part of, intern- of, your, of your national health services. That's why you must have a national health service. They have one, a bill, a, a draft up right now in the US on this particular thing too. And... Um, it's, it's to do with partnering, partnering with parents on behalf of the U.S. government. 
So, austerity, a form of rationing, that goes for gasoline too, you see, and all fuels, even for heating, and your electricity, everything, everything's rationed in warfare. Massive debts, or oh, we've got to pay it off and go into deep austerity, deep, deep austerity, post, we're post-industrial. Everything that happened during wars has been happening without the physical war across Europe and the Americas. You see, all of it. But now they've introduced part of the wars with bringing in uh, many uh, Muslims in, flooding the European countries and so on. And they know in the facility too there will be radicals amongst them. So now you'll have the same thing as you had during a war situation as well, where you have government spying on all its own citizens, you see. You think this is all by chance, don't you? Do you really think it's all by chance? As I say, if you want to conquer, the best way to do it is economically. And also, if you want to conquer... You simply plan it that way by those who control the scam of the money system. The real mafia, the real mafia, you see. And that's what we'll touch on tonight. That's why it's, it's not just gloom and doom I'm giving you, I'm giving you the facts here. Now, the ancient Greeks talked about how a human being works, for instance, like Aristotle. He talked about uh, the driving force in a human, which was basically the spirit, the spirit, you know, that drives you. It can push you forward and gives you the energy and, and, and sometimes demand to get things or whatever it happens to be. And then you, you have to have reason to dominate and control, order it, you see. And you also have passion, passion. Spirit can drive passion, but reason must also control the passion. And ultimately, every human being knows, doesn't matter who that anybody happens to be, as you go through your life, and you maybe regret certain things, if I'd done this and, or done that or not done this or done that, whatever, you'll say to yourself, you know, if I knew then what I know now, I wouldn't have done this, or I would have done that, or I would have chosen this, or whatever happens to be. Because your reason is more in control of your, your passion, basically. If you want to control people through passion, look where it gets you. The big mob like the Bolshevik Revolution was when folk were sent into the Russia, slaughtered millions, millions of the people. I mean, with, with glee. Massive story behind it, too. But again, they had needed the, the, the people to be on their side. The mob, you might say, the, the vast majority, even the silent majority, who were terrified. They'd always be on their side, or, or else... And when you get a mob, how do you control a mob? You get them excited with passion. 
entertain them too. That's what you do. Reason must control your thinking and facts. Facts require massive investigation. And that means that there's no topic, no topic that can be taboo to you. Even even when you've been brainwashed to be politically correct in any particular area or every area, you must investigate everything for yourself. You also have in the mass man this need to belong and he won't investigate anything. They'd rather live in delusion forever to belong to the rest of those in delusion. But here an individual, you must search out things for yourself and nothing can be taboo. When anything is made taboo, uh, you better always think to yourself, it must be an awful darn good reason uh, that you're not supposed to look at any particular thing. But you must. And stop thinking that accidents just happen. Here we are, supposedly in a space age and all the rest of it, and satellite and computers galore and, and all this kind of and, and you think, really, that, that it's just strange. It's like, it's like, you know, earthquakes or something, when, when the economy just goes belly up. And, and all these top paid, you know, millionaires, like annual millionaires for their paychecks, don't see it coming. Who, who is kidding who? It's meant to go that way. So we're being sterilized. That's not news anymore. I was young about that back in the 90s. And even before, actually, I knew it too. Again, by looking into other, other, other fields of study. And statistics and all the rest of it. We're in massive uh, debt. Let's like a war. So we have, we're into what's coming now, which is rationing by demand through penalties and taxes, and there will be controlled scarcities of fuels and so on, you see, just like wartime. Uh, you also have uh, governments taking over all parts of society, again, to take over the chaos, and from the chaos, to help you out of it, right? <laughs> it's, it's, you, you don't need the physical war. You don't need it. But have got all the elements of, a real, of an actual physical war. And just to cap it off, as I say, we definitely will have ongoing terrorism forever within all our countries now because that's the agenda. And the big boys have said that there'll be for the whole future now it's going to be terrorism, the so-called experts and and uh, security, etc. But you, you're also supposed to think it's all by chance and coincidence and blunders, you see. It's safe to feel that way, doesn't it? It's really safe, isn't it? We're all in it together. And everybody will accept you for putting it all down to coincidence. So here goes with some of the articles that tie in completely with what I'm talking about. And I'll leave you to do the thinking for yourself. I'll start off with this one here. And it's from Paul Craig Roberts it says the US economy has not recovered and will not recover February the 18th 2016 
This is the US economy died when middle class jobs were offshored and when the financial system was deregulated. That's absolutely true. Job offshoring benefited Wall Street corporate executives and shareholders because lower labor and compliance costs resulted in higher profits. These profits flowed through to shareholders in the form of capital gains and to executives in the form of performance bonuses. Wall Street benefited from the bull market generated by higher profits. However, job offshoring also offshored U.S. GDP and consumer purchasing power. Despite promises of a, a new economy and better jobs, that's how this. Can you imagine how they tell you such opposites when they when they push for it? Oh, free trade, up a new economy and better jobs when you have no when all your factories are closed down. Replacement jobs have been increasingly part-time, lowly paid jobs in domestic services such as retail clerks, waitresses and bartenders. And you can add in cleaners and homes and all that kind of stuff, uh, which is all over the place now, window washers and you name it. Service economy. The offshoring of U.S. manufacturing professional service jobs to Asia stopped the growth of consumer demand in the U.S., decimated the middle class and left insufficient employment for college graduates to be able to get uh, to service their student loans. The ladders of upward mobility that made the U.S. an opportunity society were taken down in the interest of higher short-term profits. And it wasn't just that, no, it's, I say, there's a plan behind it. Without growth in the consumer incomes to drive the economy, the Federal Reserve under Alan Greenspan substituted the growth in consumer debt to take the place of the missing growth in consumer income. Under the Greenspan regime, Americans' stagnant and declining incomes were augmented with the ability to spend on credit. They were throwing credit cards out. That's how they got you through a good part of the 80s, 90s. Just chucking out the, 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 the credit cards for the first time. You didn't need any collateral to back you up or anything, nothing. And it says, um, one source of this credit was the rise in housing prices that the Federal Reserve's low interest rate policy made possible. Consumers could refinance their now higher-valued home at lower interest rates and take out the equity and spend it. The debt expansion tied heavily to housing mortgages came to a halt when the fraud perpetrated by a deregulated financial system, and it was a fraud, crashed the real estate and stock markets. The bailout of the guilty imposed further costs on the very people that the guilty had victimized. It's always that story, though, isn't it? Under Fed Chairman Bernanke, the economy was kept going with quantitative easing, which is a massive increase in the money supply. You just print the money off in order to bail out the banks which were too big to fail, supposedly. Liquidity supplied by the Federal Reserve found its way into stock and bond prices and made those invested in these financial instruments richer. Corporate executives helped to boost the stock market by using the company's profits and by taking out loans in order to buy back the company's stocks, thus further expanding the debt. The few benefiting from inflated financial asset prices produced by quantitative easing and buybacks are a much smaller percentage of the population than was affected by the Greenspan consumer credit expansion. A relatively few rich people are an insufficient number to drive the economy. 
The Federal Reserve's zero-interest rate policy was designated to supply the balance sheets of the megabanks and denied American interest income on their savings. This policy decreased the incomes of retirees and forced the elderly to reduce their consumption and or draw down their savings more rapidly, leaving no safety net for heirs. They don't want you passing any money on if you you have it. Using the smoke and mirrors of underreported inflation and unemployment, the U.S. government kept alive the appearance of economic recovery. Foreigners fooled by the deception continued to support the U.S. dollar by holding U.S. financial instruments. The official inflation measures were reformed during the Clinton era in order to dramatically understate inflation. The measures to do this were in two ways. One way is to discard from the weighted basket of goods that comprises the inflation index, those goods whose prices rise. In their place, inferior lower-priced goods are substituted. For example, if the price of New York's strip steak rises, round steak is substituted in its place. The former official inflation index measurement are of the cost of a constant standard of living. The reformed index measures the cost of a falling standard of the living. Of our living, I guess if we are actually living, that is. The other way the reformed measures of inflation understates the cost of living is to discard price rises as quality improvements. It's true, it's all terminology and semantics. It is true that quality improvements can result in higher prices. However, it is still a price rise for the consumer as a former product is no longer available. Moreover, not all price rises are quality improvements, yet many price rises that are not can be misinterpreted as quality improvements. These two reforms resulted in no reported inflation and a halt to cost of living adjustments for Social Security recipients. The fallen Social Security real incomes also negatively impacted aggregate consumer demand. The rigged understatement of inflation deceived people into believing that the U.S. economy was in a recovery. The lower the measure of inflation, the higher is real GDP when nominal GDP is deflated by the inflation measures. By understating inflation, the U.S. government has overstated the GDP growth. Now, this goes on quite a long article. I'm going to put it up because it ties in with what I'm talking about. And this article I'm starting here with is called The Three Marketeers. These three, another three amigos, there's many three amigos, so they'll have groups of this and groups of that, you know. But they tell you who it is. Part of the cabal, of course, that runs the money system. And it's back to 1999, and it was an article from Time magazine uh, talking about... Uh, Alan Greenspan, who was the Fed chairman at the time, Robert Rubin, Secretary of U.S. Treasury, and Larry Summers, who was Deputy Secretary or U.S. Secretary at the time, later Secretary of the U.S. Treasury. And it talks about them doing a, a conference call, basically, as a civic duty. They're on holiday, basically, but it's a, it's, I think it's, a, it's their civic duty, they said to try and sort the world's problems out, these awful problems. And this article talks about how the world at that time was in chaos because various countries like Thailand and countries in Asia were, were really going to plummet pretty well because 
they'd invested heavily in certain things. Of course, the stock market's totally manipulated too, of course. Of course it is. Always has been. But this gives you the, the, the sort of PR they put out on how we're being saved by the, the guys who are causing it all, basically running the con game of money. And this is that's Time magazine. I'll put their link up for you to follow if you want to look it up and see how it, what the prattle was then. And it's written in, in a, a typical Time magazine uh, novel style, of course. That's how they write these things, all flowery, yadda yadda, and padded uh, to, to fill pages. And then this article here uh, goes on to talk about uh, restoring trust in banking system. Economic imperative, the top group says. And that was a Globe and Mail, uh, July 30th, 2015. Uh, an influential group of leaders in the international finance says that the world's largest banks have a lot of work to do if they want to restore public trust. Years after the financial crisis, redefined a number of institutions as reckless risk-takers and wrongdoers. Now, here's a group here. It's called the Group of 30. Now, going back to the bunch that created the Milner Group and the Round Table Societies with Cecil Rhodes and so on, and became the Royal Institute for International Affairs, a private club, and American branches, Council on Foreign Relations, Trilateral, which is a specialized branch of the CFR, uh, you find that it's all connected. It's an ongoing project. But they created groups, you see, special groups from the round tables to manage different parts of, of problems in the world, all to their own agenda and their own plan, of course, of bringing a global society, global government, the type of society they wanted, and all the rest of it hasn't stopped. Well, here you have, and again, the Bank for International Settlements and so on, and here we have um, this article here. Restoring trust in banking is a public duty. An economic imperative, says Jean-Claude Truchet, G30 chairman, former president of the European Central Bank. Uh, says, said in a statement, restoring public confidence needs to be a top priority and so on. Long overdue. Followed the release of a study that examined banking's corporate culture through more than 70 interviews with top executives at financial firms in 16 countries. And they looked at how firms champion ethical values and punish unethical behavior. And collectively, they received a failing grade. Banks and banking today stand in disrepute, the report said. So here's the guys who pretty well manage cash and so on, the group of 30. Again, it's a, a longer article, and I'll put the link up for those that want to, to read it. But they do mention different names of the characters who are in the group of 30 right now. It does say here, though, uh, that the group of 30 is not a regulatory body and therefore doesn't have the power to enforce any of its recommendations to global banks. Really? So it's a private club again, you see. However, its current roster of members includes some of the most influential names in finance and economics, including former U.S. Federal Reserve Board Chairman Paul Volcker, Bank of England Governor Mark Kearney, the European Central Bank President Mario Draghi and Bank of Japan Governor Haruhiko Kuroda. They believe that banks need to focus on the so-called building blocks of corporate culture, values and conduct. And then I'll go into this article. This is more of a summary on them. It says here, uh, the group of 30 often abbreviated to G30, just like the G20 in all the rest of it. 
G30 is an international body of leading financiers and academics which aims to deepen understanding of economic and financial issues and to examine consequences of decisions made in public and private sectors related to these issues. Topical areas within the interest of the group include the foreign exchange market, international capital markets, international financial institutions, central banks, and the supervision of financial services and markets, and the microeconomics, such as product and labor markets. Noted for its advocacy of changes in global clearing and settlement. And as 30 members includes the heads of major private banks and central banks, as well as members from academia and so on. And uh, current members of the group include current and former heads of the central banks of Argentina, Brazil, Britain, Canada, China, France, Germany, India, Israel, Italy, Japan, Mexico, Poland, Singapore, Spain, Switzerland, as well as two chairmen of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York two presidents of the European Central Bank, a chairman of the Basel Committee on Banking Supervision, two chairmen of the Bank of International Settlements, uh, for International Settlement, BIS. They're the real bosses, folks, because that's, through all the crisis, that was, the whole point of the BIS, Bank for International Settlements, was to eventually run the world's money system. And the two chief economists of the International Monetary Fund, a chief economist of the World Bank, and the former president of Mexico. It was founded in 1978 by Jeffrey Bell, an initiative of Rockefeller Foundation, naturally, which also provided initial funding for the body. Its first chairman was Johannes Witt-Deven, the former managing director of the International Monetary Fund. G30. Its current chairman is Jean-Claude Trichet. Its current chairman of the board of uh, trustees is Jacob Frankel. And Paul Volker is chairman emeritus. This is the Bellagio Group, formed by Austrian economist Fritz uh, Machlup, was immediate predecessor to the Group of 30. It first met in 1963 to investigate international currency problems, particularly the balance of payment crisis which America faced through the early 1960s. Establishes study groups and so on, and uh, the experts in the specific fields of the different study groups and the particular problems that they're working on. And they're focused on central banking. And you'll see all the names there of their membership. It's quite quite fascinating to read them all. Now we'll just touch on some of them here. Paul Volcker, Chairman Emeritus CFR, Council of Foreign Relations and Trilateral Commission, naturally. Jean-Claude Trichet, Chairman President ECB, European Central Bank, 2003 to 2011. Mark Carney, who, who was the, the Governor of the Bank of Canada, and now he's in the Bank of England. And he's also Chairman of the Financial Stability Board, you see. And Jamie uh, Garuana, Bank for International Settlements. Uh, Mario Draghi, President of the European Central Bank. Former Government Bank of Italy, Goldman Sachs, former Chairman Federal Stability Board, and I think he's also trilateral as well. Um, Timothy Geithner, former U.S. Secretary of Treasury, um, former President of Federal Reserve Bank, New York. Most all these guys pretty well are CFR at least. And you have um, Lauren Summers, CFR uh, Trilateral Commission. Former President Harvard, former Secretary Treasury U.S., former Chief of Economist at World Bank, William C. Dudley, CFR, Council of Foreign Relations, 
uh, President, Federal Reserve Bank, New York, Roger W. Ferguson, Jr., Council on Foreign Relations, uh, Kenneth S. Uh, Rogoff, Council on Foreign Relations, former members, uh, also Alan Greenspan, Council on Foreign Relations, William Rhodes, Council on Foreign Relations, Martina Whitman, Council on Foreign Relations, Martin uh, Fieldstein, Council on Foreign Relations and Trilateral Commission, Janet Yellen, Council on Foreign Relations, Federal Reserve US, and many, many, many more. But uh, I'll put the link up tonight and you can check yourself. And I've done all the, the part with the CFR and trilateral. It's my own investigations that found that out. And you can do your own if you're really interested to find out how these private organizations are running the world. And I mean running the world because at the top of every country's tree is money. The money boys, believe you me. And everything underneath it in that tree runs on money. The people are the roots, you see, and you create all real wealth. And the boys at the very top reap the harvest of all of you. And they own you and run you, because you're on debts. And as I say, the guy who uh, took over when they changed into the group of uh, 30 uh, from the other uh, Austrian group, Jeffrey Bell, it says, is an economist, banker, and executive secretary of the Washington-based Group of 30, an influential high-powered council of private and central bankers. Born in Grimsby, educated London School of Economics, naturally, before working at Her Majesty's Treasury, and returning to the London School of Economics to lecture on monetary economic, economics in 1964. Served as economic advisor to the British Embassy in Washington, then joined the Schroders Bank, as assistant to the chairman, Gordon Richardson, later Bank of England governor. He was chairman of the bank Guinness McMahon Holdings between 87 and 1993. In 1978, he founded the influential G30 advisor group after an invitation from the representatives of the Rockefeller Foundation, Council of Foreign Relations, you see. And today remains that group's executive secretary. And it's just the American branch of the of the Royal Institute for International Affairs, a private organization. In 1982, he formed his own consulting company and so on. And they go into other details about him. Lawrence Summers, it says here, uh, who's also in it there, of course, uh, gives you all these positions, you know, and that he's been into. American economist, President Emeritus, and Charles W. Elliott University Professor of Harvard University. Um, left Harvard in 1991, uh, worked as the Chief Economist at the World Bank from 91 to 93. 93 Summers was appointed Under Secretary for International Affairs of the United States Department of the Treasury under the Clinton administration. And Clinton, as you know, was a Rhodes Scholar. Uh, which is also part of the Rhodes uh, Royal Institute of International Affairs group because they combined the two together a long ago. Rubin, he succeeded Rubin as Secretary of the Treasury. He played a leading role in the American response to the 1994 economic crisis in Mexico, the 97 Asian financial crisis, and the Russian financial crisis. That's when they looted Russia, by the way. He was also influential in American-advised privatization of the economies of the post-Soviet states. That's when the U.S. Treasury boys too went over and basically took all the, the state-owned, which meant the people's owned stuff, pretending they put it in their shares for every citizen of Russia and handed it to the guys that became the, 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 were already the mafia of Russia uh, and the, become the big moguls, as you well know. 
but I'll put this one up as well, and you can you, you can see about it too. It says, um, and again, so many of them have worked for Goldman Sachs, for instance, uh, J.P. Morgan, um, Chase, Citigroup, Merrill Lynch, and Lehman Brothers, uh, etc. And they'll advise them as well. It's quite something, really, um, when you put it all together. Jean-Claude Trichet, again, uh, goes into his history here. Uh, French civil servant, I love civil servants. Eh? This, it's amazing how upside down world that really exists, you know. The servants, that are civil, apparently, uh, are the masters of all the people that pay them and get an awful lot more in their big bonuses and their salaries. And they get a lot more freedoms and privileges too than the average person gets that pays their wages. Because eh? that's something. Eh? Anyway. He was president of the European Central Bank uh, as well. Became a member of the board of directors of the Bank for International Settlements. You see, the big boys. All, all set up again by all these, I mentioned all these different banks and so on, European Central Bank, uh, Bank for International Settlements, the IMF and so on. These were all set up by the private organization, Royal Institute for International Affairs. And... Um, it gives you where he, where he served and where he studied and all the rest of it in the administration. And he became a member of the Washington-based financial advisory body, the Group of 30, in 1987. Appointed uh, governor of the Bank of France in November 2003 and uh, replaced Wim Dusenberg as the president of the European Central Bank. And goes through his history as well. And in this article here, the global financial turmoil concerns U.S. Fed. Financial market conditions slow down of global economies are a major concern, yada, yada, yada. The Federal Reserve is concerned about a slowdown in the global economy and turmoil in financial markets around the world, according to minutes of the organization's latest meetings released Wednesday. And so the Federal Reserve is concerned about the slowdown. Global financial market conditions deteriorated sharply in January as recent developments in Chinese financial markets and the further decrease in crude oil prices appeared to increase concerns about global economic growth. Uh, the Fed increased its benchmark interest rate for the first time in almost a decade last December, and the market expected uh, the central bank to have three or four more rate hikes this year. However, not only did the Fed rates keep the cha- rates unchanged in its January meeting, revealed the central bank has increased monitoring of the global economy and financial stability of foreign countries for its next rate hike decision. Now, as I'm sure a lot of you have heard and know already, uh, they've been talking about negative interest rates, where basically, since banks always use the money you deposit in them to lend out to borrowers, uh, then they'll actually devalue your currency in the bank uh, and you get no returns at all. In fact, you'll pay to have it in the bank. So the one's benefit, of course, are the banks still giving out loans. And, of course, as you all know, too, it's not just dollar for dollar they loan out what they've got in the bank. They'll have to do, uh, say, $11 or something, some ridiculous sum, same in Canada and elsewhere. Um, for every dollar that, that's deposited, they can end up 11 or more of them, whatever it happens to be. 
So we're living a complete farce of what's called the science, run by the real mafia, you might say, who are all connected at the top. Not your local banks or anything, but at the top they're all connected completely. They've all done their apprenticeships at the right universities with their hand picked when, it, when they're going through. I'm sure a lot of them are, are actually picked from their families before they even get to university. And they're trained for their positions, basically. They all know each other. Uh, they are great into the top positions. They all either work for Goldman Sachs, or one of the big boys, and then they get jumped into the IMF or else, uh, preferably the world BIS, Bank for International Settlements, and they go up the ladder and up the ladder, you see. And they all are supposedly the best in their fields. As we crashed over and over and over again. And if you can, can keep believing it's all happenstance, oh, it's a slow down the economy, it's a, just we didn't see it coming. It's impossible to predict. You've all lived for quite a long time through all the different free trade negotiations going way back. Many of you have lived through the NAFTA once in the free trade agreement before that. Never mind all that, once it came subsequently, you've all watched your jobs go offshore with the factories that uprooted and went there and set up in China. You've all experienced the service economy. And the boys that planned it all, again, the full free trade deal was the same private group, this uh, Royal Institute for International Affairs, Council of Foreign Relations, and their specialised money boys, the trilateral group, you see. One big club. Private, a private club. They always seem to get appointed by those in your government, you know, those who are elected to go in, who get money to, to run for election from the same big banks and so on. You'd really have to have an awful indoctrination problem where it really works on you to want to believe. And that's the key to things. You want to believe that no one can help what's happening. It's all planned that way. All planned that way. Because Carl Quigley, who was a historian for a long time for the Council on Foreign Relations, the American branch of the Royal Institute for National Affairs, came up with the whole darn plan in his writings. He was all for it. He was a member. He was a personal historian for a while, giving the real history of why things had happened in the world, including the fact that they'd been behind the massive wars for a century. To bring about this planned society, this global governmental system, and run by the intelligentsia, you know, and Quigley saw himself as one of those. And they would have the, the planned world, the planned society. That meant plan, like a real family planning and national family planning. <laughs> the numbers racket, you see. And consumerism, post-consumerism, step-by-step stages to bring you under the institutions that he said were set up by the Royal Institute for International Affairs, previously called the Lord Alfred Milner Group, that even went as far back as creating the Boer War to grab the world's resources. 
But I've got talked about all this before, and you have to check out the archive section at cuttingthroughthematrix.com. Lots of history in there. And believe you me, um, I think it was Roosevelt said that FDR said, if it happens in politics, it was planned that way. And you better believe it. You better believe it. Just like the plan crashed the last time, in his day, I should say, um, and brought him to power, was planned as well. You must get crisis to give yourself the right to expand governmental influence and authority over the people's creating agencies and so on. Crisis is their key. They came out a long, over 100 years ago with a term that was first used then that you can never let a good crisis go to waste. How often have you heard that since? In your own lifetime. That's how you change, planned change society. Number two, you can buy the books and discs at cuttingthroughmedies.com and you, you can also donate when, if you download something to listen to. It's all free up there, but uh, it certainly would help me out because especially those who grab all the information and uh, have done and push it out as their own uh, and even put it in, in their own books. Uh, it's, it's one thing being an unpaid uh, worker or laborer, you might say, but uh, it'd be nice to get some feedback once in a while or a kickback from the money you're making. That'd be awfully, awfully nice. Because, believe you me, I have to live as well, and I have the same problems as you all do with the prices going up for every darn thing. And I don't live high in the hog like a lot of listeners actually do as well. And I live on the bare minimum. And uh, somehow I scrape by most of the time. But remember, folks, as I say, that everything that happens is planned that way. You don't give all your jobs in factories and tell the corporations, we'll pay you by the tax money, with the use of tax money, we'll pay you to go over to China and set up there. Uh, the same group that created the BIS and all the rest of it, this private group also wrote up the drafts for all the free trade bills that's been signed. That was always their intention. This thing they call free trade, which is not free trade at all, as you well know. It's selected trade for their own international corporations. So it was all planned that way. And they foresaw naturally the effects it would have over time as the service economy that was meant to substitute for a little while eventually failed. Welcome to the failure, planned that way by the experts who get what they want on behalf of their masters of the big club. That's the way it really is, folks. So from Hamish and myself from Ontario, Canada, it's good night and your God or your gods go with you.